are trying to address this issue. And I want to start by asking you this. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a spot or a position where you go, I know God has a plan for my life, but I just wish he would let me actually know what that is. I know that I can trust in God, but man, it's hard to trust in God. I know that I believe in God, but sometimes it's really hard to believe in God. Have you ever been in that spot before? What's interesting, this is where this audience is. And Peter starts off right after the greeting, giving them really the beginning of his argument to help them see that God is moving in them. He's doing a work in them and a work through them. And he starts in a way that you and I probably wouldn't expect. The way he begins in verse 3 is he says, praise God. Lift up his name. Worship him. Worship God. And he does this in a really interesting way, actually. He says, I want you to praise and worship God for your future. I want you to praise and worship God for your present. And I want you to praise and worship God for your past. In essence, he's saying, look, all around you, you see God's blessing. You just have to open your eyes and see it. Reasons to praise God are all over the place. He's saying, in your struggle, realize you have more reason to praise God than you ever do to complain. You have more reason to worship God than you ever do to worry. And y'all, this is tough, right? This is, this is a tough struggle. They're struggling with this. We struggle with this where we may know what we say we believe, but sometimes it's just hard to live this out. And Peter's remedy, he starts by saying, praise God. Look at 1 Peter 1. Like I said, we'll be in 3 through 12. Look at verse 3, and then we'll break down really 4 through 12. So verse 3, he starts by saying this. Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, he just finishes telling them, God has you there for a plan to do something in you, to do something through you. And then he says next, he says, bless God. This would be normal for somebody who's from a Hebrew background to say, to say bless God. Let's bless God. But he says, bless God the Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying we need to bless God because of something he's done in Jesus. And look at what he says. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying what Jesus, what God has done through Jesus is all worthy. It's amazing. It's incredible. And he says this, that through Jesus, we have been born again. Now, this is a very interesting phrase that, that is used. Um, John chapter 3, we see where Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wants to know how to be saved. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't have any portion of me. You won't be saved. And Nicodemus asked the question that maybe you would ask or that I would ask. Okay, so I have to be born again. This is a little awkward. But does this mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and be birthed again? I've been there for three births. We don't want to see that happen. Trust me. Like that, that's not what's going to happen. He's saying that what happens in your life is so radical that it's almost like you're a completely new person. Actually, to say it better, it's that you are a completely new person. And he starts by saying, praise God for the work that he's done in Jesus because he's caused you to be born again, radically changed. You no longer are dead in your sin. You now can be alive in Christ. And look at what he says. He says he's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope is that through Christ's resurrection, we have been born again to a new hope. In other words, the proof that you and I can live new, the proof that you and I can be born again is based in the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 
Just as he rose from the dead, you and I can no longer live dead, no longer live dead in our sin and transgression, but we can live alive in Christ. And he starts by saying, bless God because of this. And before I go any further, I want to say this. This letter is written to people that he's assuming are born again believers, are followers of Jesus Christ. But if that's not you tonight, the rest of this isn't going to matter. The rest of this isn't going to mean much. It all starts with giving your life to Jesus, with recognizing what he's done for you, with recognizing that you're a sinner in need of his grace, and that only by his grace can you be saved, and repenting of your sin and surrendering your life to him. That's the only way that you can be saved. And that's the starting point. So if that's you tonight, I want to encourage you that tonight should be the night you should repent and surrender to Christ. For those here who would say, I am a born-again follower of Christ, we see that he's writing this letter to them. Peter calls them to praise God for this glorious new birth and to recognize what this new birth means. And this is where I think we get to the point of what he's saying here. And I want to give you three things. Three things he tells them to praise God for. And these aren't just things. He says, praise God because as a believer you have a boast in these things. You have a right to these things. He says, praise God because as a believer you have first, you have a future destiny beyond all comparison. Praise God because as a believer, you have a future destiny beyond all comparison. I want you to look at verse four and five. So he just finished saying that God has caused us to be born again. Then he says he calls us to be born again to what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to ask you this. I want you to think about your future. I want you to think about where you're going to be five years from now. I want you to think about where you're going to be 10 years from now. I want you to think about where you're going to be 20 years from now. And my guess is for about 98, if not 100% of y'all, the thought of thinking about that far ahead gives you anxiety. You go, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. Like, I have anxiety about this. It, it may bring uncertainty to you. It may bring doubts. It may bring fear. To, to think about your future, for most college students, I feel like it strikes fear in their mind. But what if I could tell you this? What if I could tell you, look, come to me afterwards, and I promise you I can tell you exactly where you're going to be 10 years from now. The line would be long, right? Y'all be calling people from everywhere. Hey, come meet this guy. What if I could tell you that, that God has a specific plan for you, and this is what it is. It's going to look like this, and you're going to do this, and you're not going to be here seven years like you think you are. You're actually only going to be here six and a half. You're going to get out a little bit early. You're going to go and do this, and I could just map your life out for you. How would that make you feel? You feel like, why am I worrying anymore? Like you probably wouldn't be fearful. You probably wouldn't be as anxious about it. If you knew, if you said, I want to go to med school, and if I told you, you are going to go, you are going to graduate, you are going to get that, and this is what kind of docs you're going to be and where you're going to be at. Like you would lose a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the fear, a lot of the uncertainty, and you would feel comforted, right? You'd probably be relieved. You'd probably be excited. You'd probably feel assured. And what I want to tell you is this is actually what Peter is doing here. He's telling me, he's saying, guys, look, you're in the middle of a big struggle. And what I want to tell you first and foremost to praise God for is to look up. 
to recognize that your future is certain. To recognize that while a lot is going on around you, your future is secure. It's not changing. It's waiting for you. Look again at what it says in verse 4. He says, you've been resurrected through Christ to an inheritance. One, we know this. An inheritance is for sons and daughters. So he's reminding them once again, never forget that you're a son or daughter of the king if you're a follower of Jesus. Never, never forget that. You're a son or daughter of the king. But notice what he says about the inheritance. You've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Think about that. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's almost like Peter has a hard time explaining what this future inheritance is. I love the way a guy named Max Sanders puts this. And I think I have this on the, on the screen for y'all. He, he explains this a little bit better. Imperishable is to say our future is untouched by death. To call it undefiled, it means it's unstained by sin. To call our future unfading, it means it's unimpaired by time. To put simply, it's death proof, it's sin proof, it's time proof. I want you once again to think about this. I want you to think about a place that you've gone before or a place that you want to go that you are crazy excited about or one of the best memories of where you've been, the best place that you've ever been to or the place that you really want to go to most. I just want you to think about that. Where's, where's that place? What is it like? For me, it's not that hard for me to think about. I think of ski trip. I mean, it, it is what it is. Whenever I think of ski trip, I literally want to just like leave now and go skiing. I, it, it gets me extremely excited. But I want you to think about whatever place you're thinking of. Think of the best day you could ever imagine at the place that you're thinking of and how would you describe it? Maybe you describe your place that you're thinking of as the beach. You're like, man, it's just relaxing to sit out in the sun and bake. I don't fully get it, but, but, but yeah, it's just relaxing to sweat and like have no energy starting about six o'clock at night. It's just great to be out there. It's just great to be out in the mountains. Maybe it's a place, maybe you've been to Europe. Maybe you've done something like skydived or something like that. And it was just, you're like, man, it was awesome. It was so much fun. But I'll tell you something, you can't put either of these three words to anything you can imagine in this life. Any place that you're thinking of, you can't call it imperishable, untouched by death. Wherever you go, it doesn't matter where it is in this world, no matter where you've been, pain can still happen there. Loss can still happen there. Struggle can still happen there. You're not free from death or pain or struggle. Wherever you go, it's not sin-proof, right? You're still going to have temptations. You're still going to struggle with sin wherever you're at. And man, if you know one thing, it's, it's not time-proof. Once again, that's one of the hardest things. I, I, it's weird. Whenever we're driving to Ski Trip, maybe y'all can relate to me about a place you're going. As we're driving there, I'm sad that we're going to be leaving in five days. Like we're going there, we're on the way, and I'm like, man, we're going to be here in like five days, and it's going to be awful. Like I really, I'm like sad already. But but this, this that's coming to us, this inheritance is unfading. It's completely time-proof. Once again, I want you to think about the anticipation you have whenever you're going to somewhere you really want to be. Whenever you're one week out from that vacation or one week out from that trip, some of you already packed your bags. There's an anticipation of what's coming. Of I've heard people say this, if I could just get through this week, I can't wait for that. And this is what Peter is trying to tell them. He's saying, guys, look up. 
You're looking around and you're struggling with all these different things. You're struggling. You're asking questions about all this, but you're forgetting God has already prepared you for a future that's beyond any comparison. You have nothing here that you can even liken it to. And y'all, I'm going to be honest. We get heaven completely wrong. Like so often our idea of heaven is that we're going to go somewhere. But what do we see over and over again? Jesus is coming where? He's coming back. You see, he's coming back to finish what he started. When Jesus Christ came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's starting. It's now. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. What that means is that the heavenly, the spiritual, is going to meet with the earthly and the physical. And we're going to be here and live the way we're supposed to live. Heaven is not some surreal place off in the distance somewhere on some planet or something. Heaven is going to be here. And it's going to be because the king has come here and he's made all things new. And everything here is going to be imperishable. There's no longer going to be any death or crying or pain or struggle anymore. No more mourning. There's not going to be any temptation or struggle to sin or lie or to be deceiving or whatever it might be. And it's going to be time proof. It's never going to get old. It's never going to be boring. It's going to be a lifetime and eternity worshiping God in a place that you and I cannot even fully imagine. In the midst of their struggle, Peter says, look, the first thing you need to do is you need to praise God for your certain future. Look up. Praise God because as a believer, you have, first of all, a future destiny beyond all comparison. And the second thing he says is this. Praise God because as a believer... You have a present calling beyond your conditions. As a believer, you have a present calling beyond your conditions. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7, he says this. Once again, after, by God's power, is guarding through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you rejoice, meaning in the future that he has for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is this, guys. He's saying, he's saying look, right now rejoice in that. But no, right now, you know what? You might have a little bit of trials. It's funny the way Peter talks about this. Don't forget, Peter is writing from Rome where a guy named Nero is killing Christians. Like the stories are as horrid as you could ever imagine. Killing animals, skinning them, wrapping it around Christians and throwing them out in the woods so animals will eat them. There's one persecution where he got as many Christians as he could, stuck them on stakes and lit the whole Roman Empire up with Christians. And he's saying this light momentary trials that we go through, guys, yeah, they're various. But they're preparing us for something that they cannot take from us. That's better than you could ever imagine. And he's saying, look, you're not called to say, God, I know that you have a great future for me. I'm just going to doodle through life. No, he's saying, y'all, there's a race to be run. There's a race to be run. There's, there's, there's something that you're called to do while you are here. But this race is going to include some various trials. Various trials can mean several different things. I like how kind of compiling some that we even see in 1 Peter, is we see this. One of those trials is going to be uncertainty. Not knowing for sure what's going to go on in your life. That could be a trial. 
saying, God, I don't know what's to come. I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm in the midst of this. I don't know why you haven't shared this with me. I don't know why uncertainty maybe is a trial that you're going to have to experience. Another trial would be opposition or persecution, which would be verbal or physical abuse. I don't know how far it is till physical abuse happens here, but verbal abuse obviously is already happening in America, especially in the north, and it's coming down. My sister's a church planner in Michigan right now, and they've had people try and shut them down before they ever even planted the church. He's saying this may be one of the trials is verbal abuse. Another trial you may have is pain or death or sickness or loss. And y'all hear me, if you've never lost a loved one, that's tough. If you've never had to struggle with somebody having a sickness, that's tough. I got to watch my papa, who was my hero, just crumble as he got into old age. It's tough. That may be a trial that you have to go through. The last of the various trials is the temptation to sin. Later on, you'll see he talks about the, the devil as a roaring lion, as someone who's constantly after you to seek to kill, steal, and destroy. He doesn't sleep. He's constantly trying to tempt you to fall, constantly trying to tempt you to run away from God and to live for some other purpose than him. Peter says, there are various trials while you are here. And maybe like you, the, the people here are saying, I know we're going through trials, but is there a purpose to it? And Peter says, absolutely. Look at 7, verse 7. Oh, I'm sorry, start with verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he says, start at 7. So that, in other words, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose of going through these various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what, what purpose are these various trials? It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith is going to be found out. You see, trials reveal the truth. Trials show us what we're really made of. Yo, it's not that hard to claim to be a Christian whenever it looks good to go to church and to be around there and it's easy for you. But whenever it actually starts to cost you something, whenever there's a trial involved and it tests your faith, you find out really what you're made of. And he's saying, this is what trials do. They help you see where you are. The trial or the test shows us where we need to grow in our faith, or it shows us where we don't have faith at all. And so I've heard people ask this, how do I know if I'm truly saved? We're not going to answer all of that tonight. But one answer you see right here is, this is how. What happens whenever trials come? Do you endure? Do you continue the faith? Do you abandon the faith? What happens whenever trials come? I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus told a parable one time about the parable of the sower. And in the midst of that, he talks about how this sower goes out and basically shares the gospel with four different types of people. One of those people are people who hear the gospel and they say they accept it and they rejoice in it. And, and, and they sprout up and they go and they, they're about that life for a certain amount of time. But then he says, but then whenever trials come, they fall away. Whenever trials come, they find out that they really didn't have the faith that they thought they had. They didn't really have the faith that they said they had. And you all think of it like this. You find out what your faith, if it's real or if it's fake, whenever it finally starts to cost you something. Whenever your faith costs you a friendship or a friend group, you'll find out if, if it's really that, that important to you. Whenever, whenever you're in a relationship that you know you don't need to be in, you find out 
Is the relationship with God the main thing or is this relationship with someone else the main thing? What, what's on the throne of your life? You find out the cost never you have a lot of free time and you realize, you know what, I don't do anything with my life that's not about me, my comfort, my pleasure, my joys. You find out about the cost whenever you have to make moral decisions. You get in a relationship or you're not in a relationship and you have to make moral decisions about am I going to live for God or am I going to live for me? You find out time-wise. You find out whenever your belief in the midst of a tragedy. You find out during perseverance, during hard times, you find out what your faith is made of during the midst of the trial. One guy named Warren Wearsby, I love this quote from him. He says, the trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. A person who abandons his or her faith when the going gets tough is only proving that his or her faith or that he or she really had no faith at all. You see, for some, trials show them that they aren't who they think they are. For others, trials show us where and how we need to grow. During the midst of trials, we have to answer questions like this. Do you really treasure Christ above all things or do you not? Do you really trust God no matter what you see around you? And do you really see God as the only necessity of your life? Trials refine these things and they show you where are you at. You have to answer these questions as you walk through them. And I want to tell you this. We, we so often think of trials as bad things for us. Trials are bad. But I want to tell you a story I heard this week that I found actually really interesting. Is This guy named R. Kent Hughes, who's a scholar, he, he writes about in ancient Rome, they used to use a gardening tool or an agricultural tool called a tribulum. And this tribulum was basically a cart that was a roller at the bottom that you would roll over grain or that you'd roll over wheat to separate the grain from the sheed. So you would get the seed and you'd get what you need and you'd leave behind what is useless. And on the bottom of this roller was sharp rocks and iron and things that would basically cut and turn and, and, and it would separate, it would do its job, it would separate it, but it was a rough process. And you all found this really interesting. Do you know where our word tribulation comes from? From the word tribulum. It started as a tool that, that in order to separate what they don't need from what they do, the pure from the unpure, the useful versus the not useful, it had to go through a rigorous grinding process. But the farmer would never use a tribulum to mess up the goods. He'd use it to purify them, to make them useful. And what I want you to see is this. So often we think, man, trials are coming my way. God must be punishing me or God must be mad at me or God must not care about me. It's the exact opposite. God is trying to do something in you. And once again, you're going to see where is your treasure. When things get tough, God wants you to know where do you really run for joy? Do you run to friends? Do you run to sex, porn, or some other pleasure? Do you run to school, sports, or some other status? Do you run to comfort, social media, Netflix? Do you run to control your own body image to the weight room? What do you do whenever trials hit? There you'll find what you really treasure. There you'll find what you really hold up as the main thing in your life. There the idol in your heart will be revealed. Not only that, you'll see who do you really trust? In the midst of a trial, do you whine? and gripe and complain and tell everyone and want everybody to feel bad for you? Are you so busy trying to get out that you're not gonna grow from it? Trials come our way because God is trying to do something in us. He's trying to produce something in us. Look at verse seven again. I want you to see this. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, now see what it says here. Your faith, which is more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire. You know how precious our faith is in God's sight? It's more precious than gold. It's more precious than anything. God is working in your and my life to make us a type of people, to make us people that grow in our trust of him, to put him on the throne of our life as the ultimate treasure. And you all think all this leads to this main question. Do you see God as all you need or do you not? And this is a question you got to work through and work through and be reminded of. And this is what trials do. They remind you, where's your treasure? Who do you trust? What's the necessity of your life? Let me explain it this way. Scripture is clear. If you get Jesus and nothing else, you get everything. You get life. But if you get everything and you miss out on Jesus, you get nothing. You get nothing. And this is what he's trying to say here. Jesus is the only necessity in your life. Is he really the only need? In trials, you see that God is who he says he is and that he's making you who he says you are. He's working in you and he wants you to see that no matter what happens in this life, you only need him. With him, you can make it. And trials remind us of this truth, y'all. Trials remind us that we have a God who never leaves us or forsakes us and he's always with us. And hear me, if you try and flee the trial just to get away from it, you're going to miss out on what God's trying to do in your life. We get trials not that we can get out of them. We have trials in our life so that we can grow from them. But the option is on us. Where's your treasure? Who do you really trust in? What is really the big necessity of your life? And I want you to look at the result of this. Look at the end of 7. He says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. He's saying if you endure... There's praise and honor and glory whenever Jesus comes back. In other words, you will not regret it. You will not regret letting the trials have their work in you. Rather, it will result in you praising even then for what God has done in your life. I just want you to imagine this scenario, and I think it really sums up the first two points together. I want you to imagine that you're driving 167 north. For many of you that are like, I have no clue what that even means at the moment. Uptown, downtown. You drive north over the railroad tracks. Ponchatoula's on the right. You get a phone call. Somebody at Wiley Tower. They say, hey, my name's Jake. I get that from Jake from State Farm. I guess, hi, my name's Jake. And just wanted you to know you just got drawn to win $10 million. But you have 10 minutes to get here. Click. What do you do? Well, I was like, I whipped that thing, right? You get over there as fast as you possibly can, Right? I know if it's me, I'm going, I don't care if it's a one way or whatever. I'm having it my way right now. Raw, I'm going to hang a Louie right there. I'm going to bust tail there. I'm going to hang another left as fast as I can. And let's just say that you get there and you turn a left and you're in front of the traffic and then you see those dreaded train, whatever they're called, bars. I don't know what they're called. That's probably sad. They're, they're coming down and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to get stopped by the train. So you wait for the train to go by, Right. Nah, I'm not doing that. I'll pay for them suckers if I break them. You know, you're going to whip it in there, get through there as fast as you can. Well, let's say you do that and you bust two tires. 
Do you bust two tires and you just sit there and you look out and you go, oh my gosh, this always happens to me. I have the worst luck. Like, like are you going to be like so sad about this and crying about it and worried about it? No. What are you going to do? You're going to hop out. You're not even going to look. You're going to bust Olympic style run. You know what I mean by that? It's open hand. You see the difference in the sprinter and the long runner. Long runner is this, sprinter is this. I don't know why the difference matters. But you're running open-handed, right? You're going to bust tail past the depot, hit rust and cleaners, hang a left, then hang a right going down past Steeples Glen. And let's just imagine you're going by Steeples Glen and there's somebody out there cooking burgers. Not baby burgers, big, fat, juicy burgers. Like, hey, bro, girl, you can't say lady. Girl, want a burger? What would you say? See these hands? I'm running. Like, I'm not stopping for the burger. Like, I got somewhere I'm going. Let's say you keep on running. There's a stop sign. You run the stop sign, and what happens? You get smoked by a car. If you're conscious, what do you do? Open hand, right? You're running again. Like, it doesn't matter. You're running to Wiley. You hang a Ralph once you get to the end, and you're right there by the Wesley Foundation. Like, hey, dollar lunch. You're like, get out my way. I'm getting to Wiley, Right? The whole point is there's not a thing in this world that could keep you from getting to that, right? You got your eyes on the treasure and no pain, even getting smoked by a car. No struggle, a train coming in your way, tires blowing out, a broken leg where you're limping trying to get up there, right? Nothing's going to keep you there. No distraction is going to keep you from getting to Wiley. Why? Because you see the prize, you recognize out there at the end of the tunnel is something that is more than you could ever imagine. And nothing's going to keep you from running the race. Nothing's going to keep you from keeping your eyes on that. And this is what Peter is saying. He's saying whenever you become a follower of Jesus, God says, you have no idea what I have in store for you. But there's a race to run. And Peter says, if you believe in that, you say, no trial. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to keep me. I'm going to run the race, keeping my eyes on Christ no matter what. Now, some of you may go, Merrick, this is hard, though. You're talking about 10 minutes versus a lifetime. And what I'm telling you is I'm talking about 10 minutes to get there and to have $10 million for a lifetime versus a lifetime of endurance for eternity with Jesus. Peter is telling them, look, guys, whenever you recognize what God has in store for you, you will stop at nothing to run the race. Any trial that comes your way, you'll say, bring it on. It's not going to stop me. If anything, it's going to purify me. If anything, I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep going. And Peter wants them to understand no distraction, no pain, no delay, no nothing. I think Paul says it best. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And look at what it says. For this light momentary affliction. Do you know anything about Paul's life? He got beaten. He got stoned. He got shipwrecked. And he says this light and momentary affliction, this is nothing, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Elsewhere, Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the present sufferings of this life have no comparison to the eternity that's before us, to the eternity that we have in Christ. This is the life of believer. And hear me, guys, this is a narrow road. This is a narrow path. Many people don't run down this. Many people maybe hope to, but many people don't run down this path. I'm not saying they're not a believer. I'm just saying they struggle and they go through this and they go through the trials and they run to the other treasure. They run to the other things. Instead of saying, Christ, you're my all. 
You're my necessity. You're my treasure and all my trust is in you. As a believer, praise God because as a believer you have a future destiny beyond all comparison. Praise God because as a believer you have a present calling beyond your conditions. And then praise God because as a believer you have a present privilege beyond comprehension. Now I know you might think you said future and then present, why not past? Well, he is pointing to the past. But what I want you to see is he's going to point to the past to talk about something presently that is a privilege of ours. And you honestly could do this with the first point. Yeah, we have a future glory, but it's a present hope in that glory. And so what you see is he says, you have a present privilege beyond comprehension. Look at verses 10 through 12. And y'all, before we start this, I'm going to say this. This right here was supposed to be a tag on at the end of the sermon. I wasn't going to talk about it much. It was going to be the bow at the end and let's pray. And I realized I've never even learned about this before. I've never thought about this before. So I'm going to challenge you. This is something new for me. Maybe it's not new for you, but it's really interesting what Peter is trying to argue here. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, he's pointing to the past. He's saying, guys, look, about this salvation that you now have, that you now get to enjoy, the prophets were searching for this diligently. They heard continually that there's a Messiah coming. The Christ is coming. Since Genesis 3, this was God's promise to humanity that one day I'm going to come and make things right. And we see all of the Old Testament, you see people saying, what's he going to be like? Who is he going to be? How can we know who he is? And you get in Isaiah, this, this, this massive 53 or 52, 13 through 53, 12 gives you so many descriptions of what the suffering service going to be like. You see in Psalm 22, given to David, just how Christ is going to be crucified. You see in Micah, where he's going to be born. You see all these different things through the prophets of how Christ is going to come. And what he's saying is they searched diligently. Look at verse 11, inquiring what person, who's it going to be? Or time, when's it going to be, that the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, I think one thing that's pretty neat is he says the spirit of Christ in them. They're writing these things with the spirit of Christ in them. This is one argument for inspiration of scripture once again. The Old Testament isn't written by a bunch of guys who just had too much time on their hands. It's written by people who were carried about by the spirit as they were prompted by the spirit. And look at what it says they wrote about. They were writing about the time and the person of when this Christ would come and what would be of him. And look at the last verse. It says, it was revealed to them. They were serving not themselves, but who? You. Like, what? Wait a minute. The prophets, you're telling me Isaiah was serving me. Jeremiah, me. Ezekiel, me. He's saying all these people, these prophets, as they were searching for these things, diligently looking, they recognized that Christ wasn't coming during their lifetime. But they still searched for him so that you would know when he did. So that you would have no doubt who this Jesus was going to be. You know, the truth is this. All of human history hinged between two people. One, it was Adam. When Adam sinned, there was a separation between God and man. After that moment, all history is hinged on this Christ this Messiah who's supposed to come. And he has come. 
And we can know that it was him because, y'all, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament tell us what he's going to come, what he's going to look like, how he's going to be, what he's going to do, and what's going to happen. And they all came true in Jesus. And if the prophets were here, do you know what they would say? What's it like? What's it like knowing the whole story? What's it like recognizing that God's plan the whole time was to bring all people under him, Jew and Gentile? What's it like to know about the grace of God where you don't have to keep going into the temple and killing these animals and then doing all these different things and doing all these different things? What's it like to know that God himself came to earth for you? What's that like? Because one thing you can see from the prophets is they weren't sure what was going on. You look at Daniel, and half the time he talks about visions he had, it says he was greatly disturbed. He was troubled. What does this mean? In Christ it was fulfilled, and the prophets were serving you. And this is what Peter's trying to tell them. Recognize you're a privileged people where you don't have to wonder about how can you be reconciled to God. You're a privileged people. You don't have to wonder about what is the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus. Recognize you're a privileged people because you don't have to wonder about when is he going to come, what is he going to look like. But you're privileged because you can know him, and you can know that he has come, and you can know that he came, and what he did, he did for you. The last thing I want you to see this, look at the very end of 12. It says, they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then what's it say? Things into which angels long to look. What in the world does that even mean? Things into which angels long to look. You know, the angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. And basically what it's saying is this, the angels were in great anticipation to say, how's God going to do it? The angels, I'm sure, are looking at humanity going, God, why would you want to do it? As sinful as they are, they're running against you like, like what's going to happen? And just imagine like if you're watching a movie and the movie starts, you know, it's always good, usually at the beginning, and then something bad happens, and then there's the hero that comes in, and then there's the happy ending. The angels, what this is saying is they're looking and going, what's going to happen? How are you going to do this? Yo, our salvation is so great that it astounds even the angels before God. And you know what it is an indictment for us is we can get to where we're no longer in awe of it. Peter's saying, recognize the privilege that you have to live after he has come. The goal here was to stir the souls of the people to a restored gratitude to God, a gratitude for what he had done for them. And y'all, you and I should recognize this privilege. We can praise God because he's allowed it to happen. We can praise God because of what he's done in Christ. Peter calls them to praise God and to praise God because as a believer, as a born-again follower, they can bask in a future destiny beyond comparison. They have a present calling beyond conditions, and they have a present privilege beyond comprehension. And, y'all, what I want to ask you is no matter what's going on, how will you praise God tonight? How will you praise him? There's several ways for you to respond to this. There's several things for you to be able to look at. The first is this. Are you a born-again follower of Jesus? You get the privilege of living after Christ has come. And the message of salvation is offered to you. Will you repent and will you believe in him? You'll also, will you change the way you think about heaven? If you're a follower of Christ, I want to challenge you to something. 
Write those words somewhere where you're going to see them. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Write them somewhere where you can put them on the mirror, put them in your car, put them somewhere where you can constantly keep them ahead and say, that's what's waiting for me. Let that be the reminder in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the complaint to say, you know what, this is nothing compared to what's in store. Maybe right now you say, you know what, I'm in the midst of a struggle and all I've done is whine and gripe and complain. All I've done is tried to get out. I want to challenge you, how will you look to grow where you're at? What's God trying to grow in you? And then lastly, I want to ask you, will you praise him tonight because you live now and not 2,000 years ago. You live now and you get to live knowing what Christ has done for you. And you get the opportunity to be born again, to have new life in him. How will you praise God tonight? Let's pray. Lord God, I just want to praise you, God, as we think about what you've done for us. God, so often, so many of us have grown up in church. We've been around it. We've heard the stories. We've heard the sermons. We've heard the Bible stories. And God, we just get numb to it. God, freshen our hearts tonight. Father, I ask first and foremost, if there's someone in here that doesn't know you, God, convict them. That's why you sent your spirit to convict the world of sin. And so, Father, I pray tonight that they would see that, Lord, that they would recognize what you've done for them and that they would repent and they would surrender their life to you. God, for us in here who can say, you know what, I know that I'm a follower of Jesus. Help us not leave here without praising you. Help us not leave here and then immediately go back to thinking about our circumstances. Help us not leave here without saying, God, thank you. I can't even imagine what heaven's going to be like, but I can't wait. I'm anticipating it. I can't wait for it. God, help us not leave here without praising you because in the midst of the storm, God, you are purifying us and you are working in us and you are showing us that no matter what, you are sufficient. You are all we need. God, I pray that we recognize the privilege it is to even hear the word gospel. The prophets wouldn't even know what that means. That we know what the word Christ is, but that we know the person that is Jesus Christ. God, help us worship you. Help us not leave here without praising you. Because you're worth it. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to encourage you tonight is to respond. Whether you want to respond where you're sitting, praying to God, or repenting, or, or whatever it might be. Whether you want to stand and you just want to praise God through singing to him and worshiping him. Whether you want to come down here, I'll be in the front right here on the front row. If you want to come and talk to me, I just want to challenge you. Don't leave without responding in some way. Whether you're sitting, standing, or if you want to come talk.